Welcome to CHQ&A, the podcast of Chautauqua Institution, where we continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the institution grounds for even deeper insight into the work and thought processes of those who shape the Chautauqua experience. I'm Jordan Steves, recording in the Cohen Multimedia Studio on the Chautauqua grounds. Our guest on this episode is Julie A. Washington, Chair of and Professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Georgia State University's College of Education and Human Development. Professor Washington specializes in language development and disorders in high-risk populations, early literacy and language interactions, African-American child English, and African-American student achievement. Her work focuses on understanding cultural dialect use in young African-American children with a specific emphasis on language assessment, literacy attainment, and academic performance. In addition, she is an affiliate faculty of Georgia State's Language and Literacy Initiative. Currently, Professor Washington is a principal investigator on the Georgia Learning Disabilities Research Innovation Hub, funded by the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, part of the National Institutes of Health. This research initiative is focused on improving early identification of reading disabilities in elementary school-aged African-American children who speak cultural dialects. Professor Washington joined Sarah Toth for an in-studio conversation on July 25th, shortly after delivering a lecture in the Chautauqua Amphitheater as part of a week themed, The Life of the Spoken Word. Good morning. My name is Sarah Toth, editor of the Chautauquan Daily and lecturer associate in the Department of Education at Chautauqua Institution. I'm here in the Cohen Multimedia Studio with Julie A. Washington, professor and chair of the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Georgia State University. Uh, Dr. Washington, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here this morning. Good, wonderful. Um, so Dr. Washington specializes in understanding cultural dialect use in young African-American children with an emphasis on language assessment, literacy attainment, and academic performance, as she gave the morning lecture July 24th in the amphitheater. And Dr. Washington, I want to start with, an, I'd like you to share an anecdote uh, that you mentioned on the AMP stage that was actually the lead to the Atlantic piece profiling your work. So I imagine you're tired of talking about it, but I think it's such a powerful uh view into your work and why your work is important. Yes, that's a, uh, an anecdote I use a lot because people really understand it. Um, it, it makes it clear because my um, real focus and concern uh, with African-American kids who use dialect and learning to read is the cognitive load mm -hmm. that they have that they bring to the reading process and how hard reading becomes when you use a dialect that's different from the school language. So um, I really became aware of this when I was a really young scientist um, working at the University of Michigan. And I was working with a little girl who was four years old and we were involved in a project where we were focused on story retells. And so we were reading the story, Are You My Mother by P.D. Eastman. And Classic. yes, it is. Whenever I'm talking and I say, who knows the story? If there are any teachers in the audience or parents, every hand goes up. And so uh, most people are familiar with the story that it's about a baby bird and um, the baby bird is uh, in the nest and the mother before the egg hatches leaves the nest to go get food. 
and the baby bird um, hatches before the mother gets back. And the bird wakes up and says, where is my mother? And so jumps out of the nest in search of his mother. And so he approaches a variety of people, objects, all kinds of things, animals, um, and says, are you my mother? And then the answer is always, no, I am not your mother. I am a... And so we went through this story and um, it's a great book. So it was a really enjoyable experience. And then when I finished telling the story, it was a little girl's time to tell me the story. So she retold the story and um, she started, you know, reading it. And then she got to the part about, you know, are you my mother? And she said, is you my mama? I ain't none of your mama. And she read the whole story that way. It was hilarious. And so we had a really great time with the story. And she read it all the way through. And it was um, it was enjoyable. But then I went back to my office and thought about the task mm-hmm. that was before her in order to just do a simple story retelling. That she listened to me tell this story in a dialect that wasn't her own in the community. And then she retold it. She kept the sequence. She didn't lose the vocabulary. She was using the pictures as a guide, Mm -hmm. but she didn't lose the story and she told the story well. She told it sequentially. And I thought about what it took for her to do that, that she had to translate the story into her own dialect while keeping track of all the elements. And when I thought about the working memory load that that takes for a child to hold on to something, recode it, and then tell the story again and maintain its integrity. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of work. That's what I mean by cognitive load. Um, When a student comes to a task like the one she did, you have to have great language skills to be able to um, hold on to a story and retell it in the dialect in a dialect in which it was not told to you. Mm -hmm. And it was um, the beginning of, wow, this is hard for these kids. And perhaps this contributes to the reading problems we see. When you talk about cognitive load, I think there's probably also a lot of uh, emotional load to that Mm -hmm. too. Yes. Can you kind of talk about that difference between a home language and a school language? Yes. So um, every child comes to um, school with whatever the language is at home. Mm -hmm. And um, the more that the language at home matches the one at school, the easier your transition is going to be. So if you come from a speech community where they're using mainstream American English, they're reading stories in a traditional way, uh, traditional school way, then your transition isn't going to be as difficult as someone who comes from a community where their community language system differs significantly from the one at school and differs importantly significantly from the language of text. And those are the kids who are working the hardest to get to the school standard. And we seem to understand that when we're talking about kids who speak a language other than English, but there's not much understanding that the same is true for kids who speak dialects of English. So within language differences, can cause as much difficulty for kids as across languages. That was going to be my next question, Mm -hmm. actually, because I was wondering if methodologies with English as second language learners could be translated into code switching education. 
Yeah, actually, somebody brought that up yesterday after the um, after my talk um, when I was uh, greeting people. And that is, in fact, um, a good way to think about doing um, addressing dialect and helping kids make the switch to the classroom language. And in fact, I saw it done once. And really? yes, I did. And it was so effective. And it was a school district right outside of Detroit. They got this new principal and she came in to a group of kids who had just taken the state reading test in fourth grade and only 5% of them passed. And so she was trying to come up with creative ways to improve the outcomes. So when I got there to this school, she was doing this, um, it was an ELL curriculum with this school that was 75% African-American, 20% Chaldean, um, and Chaldeans are Northern Iraqis who don't speak Arabic. They speak Aramaic, which is an ancient language that I didn't know anybody spoke. Uh, <laughs> that That is as ancient as it gets. Yes, it yes. is. And I was like, Aramaic, wow. And then there are 5% of kids who were, you know, from different backgrounds. And most of the community was low um, middle class or upper low class. So right on the edge of middle class. Okay. And um, they... She had these kids starting in kindergarten doing this ELL curriculum where the curriculum talked about home language and school language. And so they would be presented like with a sentence and she, the teacher would say to the kindergartners, this is a home sentence because it doesn't do this or it leaves out this verb. In school, we have to include the verb. Okay. And then in first grade, she did the same thing. By second grade, the teacher said, this is a home sentence. This is a school sentence. Can you tell me why? And so they were making the kids more metalinguistic. So they were able to talk about home language and school language at a very explicit level, which is not something you usually see. By fourth grade, it's tell me about these sentences. And so by the time that cohort of students who started on this curriculum in kindergarten got to fourth grade, 75% of them passed the reading test. And so she, it was very creative and she seemed to know from the beginning when she walked into the school, language is probably part of the issue. And so she started this curriculum and I called it code switching. She didn't think that's what it was, but that's exactly what she was doing. And it really worked. So to go back to code switching for a second, I'm curious, I'm, I'm amazed uh at the um, the sheer amount of work these young African American children have to do to even to even communicate in the same kind of way as white counterparts, it's it's work that their white counterparts don't need to do unless they're from rural environments. This is true. Thank yes. you. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that does something to to your brain, wiring your brain for, for, for new skills for different, like it would just, it would seem to me that if somebody has done all of this work to, to learn how to code switch effectively, that would also then open them up to be better suited for, for other language acquisition skills. I actually agree with you, but there's no empirical evidence to support that yet. I thought that it was a bananas hypothesis, yep. but I wanted no, to throw it No, that's what we're there. working on okay. next, because one of the things we know about bilingualism mm-hmm. is that if you speak two languages, there's data that, a lot of data, that shows that you're better at many tasks. So tasks that involve switching, because mm-hmm. you're switching back and forth between languages, so you become good at those kinds of tasks. 
these executive functions, we call them. And so kids who have, who are bilingual have better executive function than kids who are not bilingual. And there's no reason that that shouldn't also be true for kids who are bi-dialectal. It's just that we've been so focused on the negative consequences of dialect that we haven't spent enough time focused on the positive outcomes or the strengths that you might have because you speak two dialects. So that is not bananas. It actually is our focus right now, moving forward. So how do you go about proving that, doing those studies, gathering that data? How you know, I think some of the some of what we're starting to think about is that some of the tasks that we use, even our assessments, are like this book that this little girl was reading. They require them to they require um, African-American students who use a lot of dialect mm-hmm. um, because those are the only students we're really talking about. We've learned that it's not everyone who speaks African-American dialect. It's the kids whose dialect use is so high that they're really far away from the standard. So if you're a child who doesn't speak a whole lot of dialect, but you speak it, you're not going to be having trouble with reading. It's your counterparts for whom more than 50% of what comes out of their mouth is African-American English. And so for those kids, we talk about their linguistic distance being so far away from the standard that it makes it difficult. So for those students, it's like the little girl in the book. When we give you a language test and you are presented with these sentences, those sentences are in mainstream English. And so before you can even answer our question, you have to do a transformation just like this little girl did to get to the answer. And so um, that's an extra step that your non-dialect speaking peers don't have to do. And so one of the things that we are um, investigating doing at this point is developing a dialect coding system so that when something you say in dialect is equivalent to what we're trying to get in mainstream American English, you get credit for it. Because (laughs) the goal is not for you to code switch on the instrument. The goal is to figure out what you know about syntax, Mm -hmm. what you know about morphology, what you know about phonology. And so we should allow the same way we do in Spanish. If you know a lot about morphology in your dialect, we should allow that to be equivalent to knowing a lot about morphology. It's an accessibility issue. It's absolutely. And to this point, I just feel like there used to be a distinction made in psychology that we don't talk about much anymore, but is relevant here. We used to talk about the difference between competence and performance. And all we've allowed African-American kids to, to do to date is to demonstrate performance, never underlying competence. And so we need to get at their competence. What do they really know about language, not what can they do with language? So that's kind of where we are, um, thinking about developing different assessments, trying to understand code switching better, which is something we don't completely understand, like what drives it um, for kids. We know that like in this context, if I'm speaking to you, you're not African-American and you don't speak African-American English, I would never speak it with you. And so we know that the speaker really matters. We know that the power differential matters. We know the physical context can matter. We know those things for adults. We don't know what drives everything for kids, who switches, who doesn't, and why. Is it, you talked a little bit about several speakers this week have talked about like language is intrinsic 
Mm-hmm. It is something you know, we are taught to read. We are not yep. necessarily taught to talk. That's it is, right. It is, it's it innate. Is, yes. Yep. Is the awareness of a need to code switch or an awareness of a difference in dialect also innate in, in children that young, do you think? No. You know, that's one of the differences between bilingualism and bidialectalism or dialects and languages, that if you speak French mm-hmm. and English, you know when you're switching from English to French very clearly. But because it's the context that drives dialect, it's more implicit. It's not an explicit awareness. Um, so most people aren't even aware when they've made the switch. They just make it in response to the environment. And so it's one of the reasons that, you know, it's hard to study in quite the same way you do um, uh, bilingualism. So many of our parents, for example, would say, well, I don't speak that. It's like, sure you do. <laughs> I had that experience <laughs> when I was uh, when I was young and I... I um, uh, when we do research, we have to distribute consent forms. So I distributed these consent forms to parents in this community. And, um, you know, I'm studying African-American English. I was new. It was like my first year at the university. And I'm studying African-American English. I'm interested in having your child participate. I got no consent forms back. And so I had an interaction with parents and kids. I asked the teacher, can I bring parents in and talk about reading development. And they said, yes. So I asked the parents after we were done, had this great session. Okay. I sent these consent forms home and nobody signed them. And this parent said it was long silence. Then finally a parent said, oh, that was you. And I said, (laughs) yeah, that was me. What did I do wrong? And she said, what is African-American English? We don't talk different from other people. I was offended by that. She said, I don't talk different from anybody else. I said, yes, you do. And she said, I do not. And then I code switched and she laughed and she said, okay, I do do that. She said, but I don't like you calling it that. And so that is one of the big differences. Like when I distribute consent forms that a lot of times because of people's lack of awareness of what it is, um, the label is a problem. And so, so how did you change the consent forms? Well, what I do now is I talk about, I use the label African-American English in presentations, I use it in um, articles, but when I send forms home to parents, Mm -hmm. I say the language use of African-American children, language used by African-American children, because they're fine with me studying their kids' language. They just don't want me to call it that. So this is a really implicit kind of system. It's not explicit for people. It's fascinating. I'd like to kind of switch gears for a second and touch on the idea that if a child is not reading at grade level by grade three, they're not going to read at grade level ever. And that's not just for young African-American children. That's, that's across the board. Yes. Uh, I wanted, I hope that you'll indulge me. I wanted to talk a little bit about a program that the institution does in the off season called Battle of the Books. It's for Chautauqua oh, yeah. County fifth graders. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this? Was... No, but Battle of the Books, unless you're doing it differently, was something that a lot of schools do. Actually, mm-hmm. we yeah. we got the, we got the idea from a school system in Maryland, who got yeah. the idea from a school system in Detroit, who got the idea from a school system yeah. in Seattle, and it's for fifth graders. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we struggle with is that we're not getting to them by that third grade mark. Now, we found another study to kind of back up our work saying, well, if kids are reading for pleasure by fifth grade, then they'll be lifelong readers. Right. But is there, 
is that third grade level really so hard and fast? I don't think it's, um, you'll never um, read at grade level or you're never, you will never catch up um, if you're not reading at grade level by third grade. Mm -hmm. I think it's better said that you will not read um, well ever if you're not reading at grade level in third grade without intervention. And I so see. if you get to third grade and you really um, have not gotten like the foundation of reading, you don't really understand um, reading, you're not reading well, you need intervention. That's one of the concerns we have about African-American kids. People assume if you're poor, you can't read because you're poor and so you don't get intervention. And so this lack of access to intervention was, you know, kind of the crux of what I was talking about yesterday. Mm -hmm. Unless we really um, pay attention, unless we're really able to identify kids who are struggling, they just don't get intervention that they need. And so kids who aren't reading by third grade, sure, they can be good readers by the time they're in seventh grade or fifth grade, but they have to have intervention. I've seen kids who are 12 who are reading at a pre-primer level. So they're like first grade, kindergarten, first grade readers and with appropriate interventions become good readers who love books. And so it's intervention that matters. It's not just that you're doomed forever to be a bad reader if you're not a good reader by third grade. But Battle of the Books can happen before fifth grade. I used to lead Battle of the Books in my son's school and we started in second grade. It is such a blast. Yeah, it's so much fun. It is so much. I, I, um, there's a video online we'll have to send you. It's yes. Wonderful. When you say interventions, does that have to occur within a school, within a curriculum, within the class, within, within the school day? Or can battle be considered, and in, when I say battle, battle the books, um, can battle the books be considered an intervention because it's just, it's, it's, it's much more qualitative rather than quantitative? But if we're giving these kids these books and they're having fun with them, they might not have had fun with the book before. Is that? Yeah, I think it just depends on how it's done. Mm -hmm. Because I, I do recall when um, once doing Battle of the Books and identifying a girl whose mother signed her up for the battle, but who just didn't read well enough to keep up with reading the books. Mm -hmm. And until we figured out that it was happening, she was getting really discouraged and not wanting to do it. And so when we finally realized that um, her reading skills weren't strong enough for her to read all of the books in the battle, um, we adapted um, her reading to make sure that she was the expert on a subset of those books so that she could read them, feel good about them, and be ready to answer questions about them during the battle. So we had to back up and make it a better experience for her. But some awareness of like where she was in terms of reading was critical. Um, but the fact that she hung in there meant that she was enjoying it, but she was starting to fade away until we adapted our um, process for her. Mm -hmm. And was it the kind of program where the organizers, did you feel that there was a good variety of books on that list? Yes. For that, mm -hmm. uh, of, of reading levels, of content, of, yep. of, of genre? Yep. Not reading level, because okay. remember it was done by grade. And mm. so since it was second grade, they were second grade books. And then third grade, third grade books. And so the reading level didn't really differ. It was the um, diversity of topics and 
books. Some of them were fiction, some were nonfiction, different areas that would appeal to both boys and girls. I would love to one day do it in all grade levels. <laughs> we, we we keep it to fifth grade right now. And, but what we do within that fifth grade cohort is we give them a list of books of, like we said, different genres, different, you know, subject matter. Uh, we also try really, really hard to differentiate, to, to give a very good variety of reading levels. So right. we will have picked basically picture books um, as well as, you know, higher level chapter books. And the idea is hopefully that a team can include uh, a student who is reading, you know, at a seventh or eighth grade level and also a student who's maybe reading at a, at a second or third grade level. Yes. And that each person is able to kind of come to the table with, um, with, with, you know, to buy into it, to buy yeah. into the book and to buy into this that's program. Mm -hmm. We'll have to send you the video for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, Julie, is there anything that you were not able to touch on in your lecture that you would like to do a deeper dive into? Um, yes, actually. Um, this came up yesterday um, at the women's house. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I try to stay away from, because this um, line of research is has sociopolitical implications as well. We have a history with um, this dialect uh, in this country. And so I try to stay away from that and really stick to the science. just the linguistic and education issues and the science of linguistics and education. Mm -hmm. But I have recently started talking about policy, as it was pointed out to me yesterday, because um, I think we are uh, unaware that, um, you know, one of the things that distinguishes us as a country when it comes to special education is that we have a special education law. It's one of the things that puts us ahead of most countries mm -hmm. who are just trying to figure out what to do with special education. But in our special education law, which is called the IDEA, um, the definition for specific learning disabilities, which is what governs um, reading disabilities, including dyslexia, and mathematics, the exclusion criteria are, so there's all the inclusion criteria about who um, qualifies as specific learning disabled, then there are the exclusion criteria. You cannot be called specific um, learning disability, have a specific learning disability, if the learning disability is due to poverty, cultural difference, or language differences. That excludes almost every African-American child who's in a poor community in the United States. It also excludes English language learners. Mm -hmm. And so what you will find is that we used to talk about overrepresentation in special ed. What we have now learned, and a lot of this work is going on at Cal Irvine, um, what we have learned is that African-American kids and English language learning kids are now underrepresented in categories that relate to academic achievement. They are overrepresented in categories like behavior disorders. Mm -hmm. And so we are facing a situation now where African-American kids who are poor are not really called reading disabled. Okay. You will hardly ever see them called dyslexic. In fact, there are a lot of sociologists who are talking about dyslexia as an upper white middle class an upper middle class um, white uh, disability category. And it's not because 
um, I don't think it's because it's a racist category. I think the law excludes kids who probably should be in that category because it doesn't allow you to be there if you're impoverished, if your language is different, or if you're culturally different. And so the assumption there, the faulty assumption is that if you're poor and you're having trouble with reading, you're having trouble with reading because you're poor. It doesn't really allow you to be both poor and learning disabled, both ELL and learning disabled. And that is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, but it's a real battle that we fight in schools because they really are excluded by the definition. So why doesn't the definition change? Because the IDEA has not been reauthorized in almost 20 years. It's supposed to be reauthorized every four years. It's been almost 20 years. That's several administrations. Yes, it is. And so and several education movements. Exactly. Exactly. And so we have contributed to this problem as a nation by not paying attention to that law and by not recognizing that this policy wording has created a um, um, bias in the way that we have approached learning disabilities. So we have all these kids, and it's true for African-American kids, eight out of 10 of them are having trouble with reading. But our data on reading disabilities and on dyslexia tells us that somewhere between 10 and 15% of those 80% actually have disabilities. And they need the support. That and they need getting. support that's different. That's what I mean about access. They don't have access to it. The law doesn't permit it. Our assessments are um, not very good. They can't tell the difference between poverty and disability. They look the same on, on testing instruments. So as scientists, we're working on the assessment instruments, but we need the policies to be working with us. And instead, they're working against us. And they're working against schools that know that kids need something else. But special ed is expensive, so nobody wants, it's an unfunded mandate, so nobody wants to have more kids on special ed. And so my view is, yeah, but that's what the law is for, and it shouldn't be a law of privilege. It is a right for mm -hmm. kids to have those services, but right now it is a law of privilege, and uh, especially in this category. And so that's the thing I didn't get to talk about yesterday. Tried to stay focused so you can't talk about everything. But I think this is a real issue. And people recognize that it's an issue. Every once in a while, I hear from a law firm that's trying to, you know, talking about trying to push the reauthorization of the IDEA um, because it hasn't been done. And in the absence of doing it, states are taking up the, um, the mantle and they're passing these um, random laws uh, and bills like Georgia just passed one. Um, where every child must be screened for dyslexia um, in kindergarten so that they can identify kids earlier. And it's a valiant effort on the part of parents who are great um, advocates for kids. But, you know, we also know that, um, okay, so we identify them. What do you do with them once you identify them? But the bigger issue is that the state law also includes the federal law. So if you are screened, you have to meet the SLD category, um, categorization in order to be called dyslexic, mm -hmm. which we know automatically means that low-income kids 
and kids who speak other languages are going to be excluded. And so it's just going to make the divide bigger. So we need, we need for the wording to be dealt with, the exclusions to be changed. Absence and IDA renewal, absent policy, um, what can teachers do? What, what are teachers doing and what can teachers be doing on that, on that uh, ground level for their students? You know, teachers are teaching and they are, one of the things I've learned is that even when teachers are, we think teachers aren't doing a good job, they're doing the best they can with what they've been given in their respective schools and in their respective districts. They get beat up a lot, but there are a lot of things working against them. And, um, you know, we talk about the science of reading and the science of reading has taught us so much, but one of the things that happens with science and practice is they don't come together very well. So by the time teachers are focused on the science we're talking about now, we've moved on to something else. And so there has got to be, and we've been talking about this forever, this um, research to practice kind of focus, it just needs to be more integrated. And so for teachers now, I think um, school districts uh, and universities, making sure that the science of reading is getting into schools that teachers are learning how to apply those practices and that they're applying them. And in the case of low-income kids, you're applying the science of reading and you are developing a culture of reading. I cannot say that enough. Schools do, many low-income schools do not have a culture of reading. What they have is reading instruction. That's not the same thing. It's what you're talking about with the battle of the books, loving books, wanting to read, um, seeing reading as a leisurely activity that you would choose mm-hmm. when you're given some time um, to do something. And that's not what we see in schools. They don't even really have access to the libraries. Kids go into the library and they run out. Library time should be leisure time, time for you to lay around the library, pick books, read books like you would do at Barnes and Noble mm-hmm. or some bookstore. You know, that's what libraries should look like in schools, but that's not what they look like. You come in, you know, you get 20 minutes, find a book, go out. Where's the culture of reading? Because when during the day are you reading that book? Mm-hmm. So, you know. What are your book recommendations to develop that culture of reading among young students? You know, you should read things you like. I mean, I think about the books that I like. Like, I read a lot, and I always have. I always say that um, there's that movie about Matilda, that was me when I was in school. Absolutely. After school, every day, I went to the Seattle Public Library. I did my homework, and the librarian would pass me books that she knew I would like because I read everything. And, um, you know, when I talk to teachers about developing a culture of reading, read books that you like in your classroom, books that you loved when you were a kid and get kids interested in reading books and let them read what they want to read. So book recommendations, like I have two sons and, um, when they were in school, they didn't want to read like the magic school, the magic tree house and things like that. It applied more to girls. They wanted to read Captain Underpants and things that were, yep. yes, things that had more farting in it. And things like <laughs> that. <laughs> And one of the things that the librarian taught me when my oldest son was in elementary school and the um, teacher wanted him to read uh, chapter books and he wanted to read um, Sports Illustrated for kids. She whispered in my ear and said, let him read what he wants to read. As long as he's reading, it's fine. 
And so I never really pushed him to read sort of the, either of my sons, to read the things that the, you know, kinds of books that the school was talking about <clears throat> if they weren't interested. So whatever they're interested in, if you have a kid who's interested in cars, buying books about cars. If you have kids, I know more about dinosaurs than I ever cared to know in my life because I had a kid who was really focused on uh, dinosaurs. Then I had one who wanted to be a storm chaser. So I know a lot about weather. And so <laughs> it's like whatever they're interested in, you find things about. There's a kid who walks around with the you know, guide in his pocket looking for rocks. That's reading. And so whatever your kids like, find books about the things that they really like, the things you hear them talk about all the time. And the interest and mo interest is what motivates kids to read. Mm -hmm. If you're, you know, forcing them to read Moby Dick because you think it's a classic. Exactly. You, you well, rolled your eyes. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure there's a graphic novel version of Moby yes. Dick somewhere that is written yes. at an age appropriate level and graphic novel. No, that's, yes. that's the debate right now. Is, yeah. you know, like the teacher saying, uh, you know, let the kid read Sports Illustrated for kids. It's, it's the same thing that's happening right now with graphic novels. Like yeah. reading is reading is reading is reading. Yep. So I'm sure somewhere out there, there's an age appropriate graphic yes. adaptation of Moby Dick. And then and, you read it. Yep. Yes. But if you're reading to kids, whether you are a volunteer or a teacher, my guideline is always don't read anything that someone that any class any child in your class could read on their own read something above their reading level why do you suggest that because then they hear higher level vocabulary they hear higher level syntax they um it elevates the language that they get from reading if they're listening to things that they can't read on their own. And that doesn't mean, you know, that if you're reading to first grade, you read Harry Potter. That's too high level. But go a grade level above. Go a little above what they're able to read and read it to them so that they can hear the language. They can hear um, the sentence structure that you get in these higher level books. They may not be able to read themselves, but they learn from hearing you read them. And so my favorite book of all time was um, Island of the Blue Dolphins. Oh, classic. Yes, yes, I loved it. Absolutely my favorite book. So whenever I get a chance to read to, you know, uh, fourth grade class, that's my, that's my choice is I would read Island of the Blue Dolphins to them because I like it and hope that they'll love it too as much as I did. Oh. Uh, Dr. Washington, I have one more question, and that is uh, possibly speculative have do you do you know what happened to the four-year-old who read are you my mother i wish i knew i think about that sometimes like i wish i knew and i wish i knew what she's reading now me too i wish i knew what she was doing now because she was four she was low income and she was homeless oh but gifted linguistically and having high level language skills can make all the difference in the world unless you don't learn the language of the classroom. That's one of the things we've learned. No matter how gifted you were at four, if you don't learn the language of the classroom, you're often not reading by the time you're eight or nine. And so I would think that this little girl was so engaging. She had such great language skills. I hope that wherever she is and whatever she's doing, she's succeeding in reading still. I hope that too. Um... Dr. Washington, I thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak thank with you. us. Thank um, you. It's been a joy. Thank you. My pleasure.
Thanks to Julie Washington for joining us on CHQ&A today, and to interviewer Sarah Toth, who during the day serves as editor of the Chautauquan Daily and as lecturer and literary arts associate in Chautauqua's Department of Education. Our producer for this episode was Thomas Mitchell. This particular program may appear in part or in full on the airwaves of our partner stations WJTN and WRFA in Jamestown, New York. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded and edited in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.